You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. He's in the building! Drink the moment. Drink it. I said, empty your mind. Coquettish and coy. Ow. Ow. What? There's people that are dying. The wickedly talented. More than great. It was historic. Crack is world. Oh, good for you. I have to apologize. One of the hottest. Hello, and welcome back to The Reheat, a podcast that re-examines the hottest celebrity news and scandals of yesteryear and asks, how would we react to the same events if they transpired today? I'm your co-host, Sadaf Hassan. And I'm Sarah Sahagian. This week, we'll be discussing the evolution of Padma Lakshmi from model and literary trophy wife to culinary TV royalty. So, Sadaf, when did you first encounter Padma Lakshmi, and what were your initial impressions of her? I don't remember exactly the first time, but I remember my initial impression because I feel really guilty about it. I, for some reason, thought that she was not much more than a pretty face. And by the way, a very pretty face. Like, just stunning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was just before I knew her amazing story. And I just thought, well, that's it. She's just a TV personality. But then I started to see her cookbooks and how much she knows food. And also how smart and interesting she is. And then I just fell really deeply in love with her. I feel like that's how it goes with Padma. Mm. Everybody that I know is a fan, but they all went through a similar trajectory. Did you? Or were you smarter than all of us? No, I... So I first discovered her when I was watching, I believe it was an A&E documentary on Salman Rushdie. And I saw her and I was like, well, she's a lot younger than he is. She's also very beautiful. Yeah. And I think it mentioned that she was a model. So I think I had this prejudice belief that she was just, you know, a garden variety literary trophy wife. She was reasonably articulate, which is something I noticed. I I didn't think that she was an airhead or anything. But, you know, I think I had stereotyped her as someone who was beautiful and married a richer, older, more famous man. That is internalized sexism on my part. I think I was also like all of maybe 10 or 11 when I watched this. I was very young, so I hadn't had my feminist awakening yet. And one of the things that makes her fascinating is the way she used to see herself is the way that people used to see her, right? Mm, As this trophy wife, which is so sad, but also makes sense because you know, if we were conditioned to see her that way, why wouldn't she be conditioned to see herself that way? And so this story is a great story of somebody evolving and stepping into their own power and challenging society's assumptions as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a little, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of how I felt. But we got there. We got there. And we have to remember that models are more than their faces, okay? Absolutely. So let's start from Padma's beginning. She was born in Chennai, India, a city her family referred to as Madras at the time of her birth in 1970. Padma is Tamil and was raised Hindu, although her memoir explains she attends temple today mostly just for the high holidays. Um, Padma's mother... Vijaya was a nurse who relocated to the U.S. in search of the American dream, as so many people do. Uh, Padma lived with her grandparents while her mother was in America making a life for them. So she stayed in India at first. But at age four, she left to join her mother in New York City. As thrilled as she was to be reunited with Vijaya, Padma's life in New York was not easy. As a child, she was molested by a relative of her stepfather. Her mother believed her, but Padma's stepdad didn't. So that led to a rift between them and resulted in her mother's second divorce. 
While tumultuous to be sure, her mm-hmm. early years were also the time when Padma developed the culinary skills that would come to shape the course of her career. When Padma arrived in New York, she was a vegetarian, and as a kid, she needed to learn how to cook because of the few non-meat options available in 1970s America. Uh, it was a very meat-heavy society, and she needed to get creative. One of the first dishes she remembers kind of tinkering with was taking some Campbell's soup and adding jalapenos to it to make it spicier and more interesting. Oh, I love that. Also, like, typical, like, Indian approach. You just throw some spice into it and it just makes everything better. I absolutely ascribe to that. Yeah, so it was really necessity that led to the Top Chef's host's love of cooking. Um, But as they say, necessity is the mother of invention, so... You know, what a great origin story. Yeah. Young Padma also had a flair for the dramatic and earned a theater degree from Clark University in Massachusetts. But she struggled to find work as an actress. Her most prominent role was probably portraying Silk, an untalented pop star in the disastrously bad 2001 Mariah Carey movie Glitter. Here's a clip of Padma singing. Remember, her character is meant to be a mediocre (laughs) pop star, which is why the vocals are so pitiful. Like, I, first of all, I have a love for that movie. I have a love for all bad movies, especially Mariah Carey is in it. But I always forget she was in this. Like, I just, that just triggered me. Yeah, and the sad part is this was one of her most prestigious roles. And the reason for that is, as an Indian woman, she struggled to even find an agent at points. And she often heard racist feedback from casting directors who said things like, quote, we aren't going ethnic with this part. That's something that she explains in her memoir. So the odds are really stacked against her. And, I mean... She tried her best. She was classically trained, but there was just too much racism in Hollywood. Um, Instead, Padma found work in the world of fashion was particularly successful in the worlds of lingerie and bathing suit modeling. Her success as a model allowed Padma to pay off her student loans and gave her the opportunity to see the world, traveling to photo shoots in faraway places like Scotland or Italy. But Padma always felt self-conscious about the modeling career she built in her 20s. In her memoir, she says she felt insecure about, quote, being in a profession that didn't engage my mind, end quote. She was also keenly aware of the privilege of being a well-paid model, explaining her ambivalent feelings about how what she describes as the alchemy of my genes allowed her to profit from her looks. I think one of the things, too, is when you're in um, a Western society and Mm -hmm. you are a person of color, a lot of the time you're exoticized. Mm -hmm. So that in itself gives her this sort of, I don't want to call it a pretty privilege when it comes that way, but it is a little bit of it. But then we see the way her race trips her up in this field. And she was coming in at a time when it was especially not so great for brown women. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a tricky thing. I feel like I've experienced a version of this myself in journalism where, Mm -hmm. you know, you sometimes feel like you're being tokenized. Uh, And I think she had that a little bit where people could say, okay, we've got a bit of color on the sheet today and then that's about it. We don't actually have to put her in anything because we wouldn't do that. I think Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a version of that. What do you think, Sarah? Well, she was also one of the few 
um, models of East Indian heritage working in Europe at the time. So she was definitely being tokenized. I mean, they weren't casting other women who looked like her. And I mean, that in and of itself must have been so hard just to show up to work knowing that you're being exoticized and fetishized and, you know, not knowing if someone's going to say something racist to you that day because that could easily happen. Imagine the microaggressions that she had to face. (laughs) Like, it must have been endless. Oh, yeah. I mean... It must have been endless. And her book is interesting. It's a very nuanced take on the modeling world because while she talks about how there there are parts that aren't glamorous at all, right? I mean, it's hard to be the only East Indian model on a set. It's also hard to be a model who kind of doesn't want to be a model, which which is Padma. But her awareness of the privilege of the money she made. I mean, she talks about how her friends hadn't even gotten real career jobs yet, and she'd paid off her student loans. I do think it's interesting because even just this idea of the model lifestyle, Mm -hmm. we've put that on a pedestal for many, many years. But when you actually look at it and break it down, it doesn't sound that great. I mean, you don't really get to eat. (laughs) Like I often think of that clip of Gigi Hadid being informed by her own mother to just eat a few almonds because she hadn't eaten all day just so she could go to her next Mm -hmm. shoot and look amazing, quote unquote. Like, I don't think it actually sounds that fun. Padma claims she always ate. Like, I mean... (laughs) Love that for Padma. I don't know if I believe it totally, because it's not even just... And that's not me judging her, because it must be difficult when you are surrounded by other people Mm -hmm. who look a certain way and who are not doing that, and who are probably judging you for even picking up a french fry. Yeah, I mean, I also define eating. Like, I don't know (laughs) (laughs) what that means. Like, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, But that is what she says in her memoir about her modeling days, that she always found deprivation difficult, and so she she did eat. Take that with a grain of salt if you are so inclined. I I, I will go ahead and say she was eating, she was quote-unquote eating relative to how her fellow models were eating. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Like maybe she got in a meal or a snack when the others just were not partaking. And for that, I say, well done, Padma. Yeah, I think probably eating more than average as a model is often still not enough to sustain the life of most of us who need food (laughs) to survive and need need food for energy. Yeah. So as she outlines in her 2016 memoir, Love, Loss, and What We Ate, Padma always knew there was an age limit to her life as a model, and she was eager to find an alternative career. She is fluent in several languages, including Italian, and so her first gig hosting TV actually came in 1997, so well before Top Chef, when she served as the host of Dominica Inn, a live talk show that was Italy's top-rated series at the time. That is so shocking to me. I I did not know that. I was very surprised when I read that. I had no idea that she had this earlier career as a super famous like the Kelly Ripa of Italy for a time. Like, I didn't know that about her. She's a woman of the world, Pat Malakshmi. She has lived many lives. She has. In 1999, she published a cookbook titled Easy Exotic, a model's low-fat recipes from around the world. Um, So afterwards, she left her job at Dominica Inn, returning to America and hoping to kind of build a career for herself, maybe get back into acting, maybe do some other things. But this cookbook marked a new chapter in her life and a return to the U.S. So it was kind of weird for her because she stopped being an A-lister in Italy. And when she came to America, she was still completely unknown. I mean, and she couldn't even find 
really an agent, which is, it's just sad. Like, that's a sad truth um, and speaks to the racism of America. And also the fact that Europe, I mean, I know this isn't necessarily racism, how they feel about Italy. That's, it's a different thing. But the xenophobia, how they don't really respect what's happening in Italy, right? Yeah. Like, Italian TV. If you're the Kelly Rip of Italy, like you'd think that they would think that that meant you had some chops, but I, apparently they didn't. <laughs> Kelly Rip also deserves more love, though. While we're at it, we'll do an episode on yeah, her. Yeah. I, I have lots to say Stay about Kelly Rip. <laughs> In August of 1999, Papa was invited to the party of the decade, the launch of Talk Magazine, helmed by legendary New Yorker and Vanity Fair editor Tina Brown. Talk Magazine was a splashy new publication that was supposed to lead the national conversation, even though it was shuttered just three years later. Talk launched on Liberty Island. Yes, the island in New York where the Statue of Liberty stands. The guest list featured luminaries from every industry, from former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to Madonna. It was here that Padma met famous author Salman Rushdie. When Padma and Salman got to talking, Padma was starstruck. She told People Magazine later, Imagine a young woman in her 20s who loves books and who had published her little cookbook and in comes this guy. She went on to add, the fact that somebody of that stature and caliber was even interested remotely enough in me to want to take me to lunch was kind of unbelievable. Salman was married at the time he met Padma, which she admits to being well aware of, right? Like this is everybody admits that they knew they were doing something wrong. Yeah. Salman already knew who Padma was when they met. Um, he'd read about her in the Italian media and was intrigued. So he read articles about her in Italy and thought she was hot. He read the Italian media, though? The magazine article he'd read about her, he was featured in the same issue. And so he, I guess he was reading about himself. And then he <laughs> saw her and was like, oh, that girl's cute. <laughs> his ego led him there. Yeah. So his pickup line when he first met Padma was, I've always been interested in Indian diaspora stories. Maybe sometime <laughs> we can talk about yours. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Sadaf, how do we feel about this pickup line? <laughs> we don't feel good. We don't feel good and we don't feel turned on, you know? Like, this would not do it for me and I could tell it would not do it for you. It's interesting because I do, like, we were just saying, this is a very ego-driven man. Mm -hmm. And I also think he's so attached to being an intellectual. Yeah. And this is that. Like, this is that. What how that kind of guy will approach you and quote-unquote pick you up. He's lucky she was already into him because otherwise I don't think this would have gotten him far. Oh, yeah. He does not have game. Because my next question I was going to ask you is his lack of game enduring or cringeworthy. But I think we've already addressed this and we agree that it, it's cringeworthy. Here's what I will say is that, yes, it's cringeworthy. But I do want to just clarify that you don't always have to have game, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it can be endearing to not have game. Absolutely. What this man is trying to do is coming in from an area where he's pretending like he does have a lot of it and he knows exactly what he's doing. What man or woman or anybody wants to like if they're attracted to something they're like let's talk about the diaspora together no that's the last thing I want to do with you you know what do you want to know something embarrassing I think this is the type of pickup line I would have used in graduate school 
Come on, love yourself. Is that true? I, I don't, don't know, know that but I true. think it would have been effective on me. I was spending a lot of time studying diasporas in graduate school. No, you're right. Like, I wouldn't have been effective on me. <laughs> oh, I know you. This would not do it for no. you. You no. would have like a little, like your eyebrow would go right up it's, and it would stay it's there. It's too self-serious, like as a yeah. pickup line. I think pickup lines need to be kind of cheeky and self-aware. Like you need to yeah. kind of nod towards the fact that you're trying to pick someone up. And this is like basically like, do you want to go do a research project with me? It's so disingenuous because that's not what he wanted to talk to her about. I, I will wager. But here's the thing. She liked it, right? It worked on her. So maybe he's not all that bad. He knew what would do it. Yeah, it, it did work. It did work. Um, so the Mumbai-born Rushdie was an award-winning writer who received his first prestigious Booker Prize for his 1981 novel, Midnight's Children. His second Booker came in 1988, for the Satanic Verses. However, Rushdie's success didn't come without controversy. Salman was raised in the Muslim faith, but later came to identify as an atheist. As a text, the Satanic Verses is critical of Islam. It also pokes fun at the Prophet Muhammad and other key figures in the faith. In addition, the book also features a character based on Iran's supreme leader at the time, Ayatollah Khomeini. On February 14th, 1989, the Ayatollah called on quote, all brave Muslims to kill Rushdie and his publishers, an instruction known as a fatwa. However, it is very important to note that this fatwa does not represent how the majority of Muslims felt about Rushdie. Rushdie spent much of the ensuing years in hiding. However, after multiple apologies, which he now claims to regret, and the death of Khomeini later in 1989, Salman slowly began to feel more comfortable venturing out in public. At the time he met Padma in 1999, Salman's life wasn't just complicated because he was a literary giant with a traumatic past. The writer, who was a full 23 years older than Padma, was on his third marriage to Elizabeth West. He also had two sons, his adult son from a previous relationship, Zafar, and Milan. The son of Elizabeth West, Milan was just a baby when his father met Padma. Not only that, but Padma was living in LA and he was based in London. Can I just say also, those are two great names. Oh, yeah. No, he's a good baby namer. I'm not going to quibble his with his baby names. His wife did it. I don't know that. Let's the give way. them I'm the credit. Gonna... Absolutely. <laughs> Let's not just assume it's him. The 28-year-old Padma didn't want to break up Salman's marriage. However, the writer began calling her regularly, and according to her, it was during these frequent phone calls that she fell in love with him. She said Salman, quote, seduced her with his greatest weapons, his words. Whoa. Again, hot. Whew. It is hot. Uh, Padma's memoir explains that at first she tried to convince herself that the relationship was innocent because it was centered around phone calls. But when she and Salman began to meet up in America or abroad, their encounters quickly became sexual. On their first date, they met up on the steps of the Met, which is very Gossip Girl, mm -hmm. and fell into bed together later that day. Padma is clear that she felt incapable of resisting Salman. According to her... He was a lot of what I wanted to be. That says a lot, doesn't it? It really does. I think a lot of us feel this way at some point. I mean, I love that line that she has because I think it's also something where we wonder sometimes when we like someone, do we want to be with them or do we want to be them? Mm -hmm. And I've definitely been there. I'm sure a lot of people have. 
And I think that's what he was for her. He Mm -hmm. was also so much older. She was considered the Hemingway of India at the time. So super established authority figure, huge fucking deal. And she probably looked at him and that probably influenced her emotions towards him. It's like, wow, this practical literary god, Mm -hmm. I don't think that, but she maybe thought that, (laughs) likes me. And so then that just influences this whole other layer of emotion, I'm assuming. Um, what do you what do you make of it? Well, I think that it speaks to her imposter syndrome. So she was starting a career yeah. writing about food for publications and for, you know, for books. She wrote Easy Exotic. Um, and she was trying to transition careers and do something that she found meaningful because she felt like her career modeling was superficial. And those are that's those are her feelings. Those aren't mine. I'm not saying that I think modeling can't be intellectual. There are lots of people who view modeling as an art form and lots of models who find it fulfilling, but she really didn't. Um, And so I I feel like she admired him because she thought he was using his mind and that he was brilliant. And she wanted to feel like she could have a life like that. And, you know, lots of women marry men that they want to be as a way to get respect because it's so hard Mm. for women to get respect in society. So you can get respect by marrying someone respectable. That's a sad truth, but it's still reality in the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Gloria Steinem has that famous quotation, become the man you want to marry. And while that's yeah. great advice, becoming that person and committing yourself to doing that doesn't guarantee you respect from society because, you know, we all know that women, especially racialized women, have to do things way better than men do in order to get any accolades at all, let alone two yeah. her prizes. Yeah, and I also do want to add, because I do know that at that time she was considered a little bit of a gold digger and Mm -hmm. um, the assumption was that he was after her just because of the way that she looked and I don't know his side of it I haven't read much up on what he felt about her at the time but I really do feel like she genuinely loved him I don't think that had anything to do with it she also just doesn't strike me as that kind of person I can't know of course but Mm -hmm. I do think I really do believe that she had a real love for him but I Mm -hmm. do think that got muddled by her by the way that you put it like just this kind of wanting to be a part of everything that he was also here's one thing I want to say and I say this oftentimes people accuse women of marrying rich or being gold diggers when they go after writers or luminaries like this. If she'd wanted to marry rich, she could have married richer. Like, she could have done better if that was the goal. (laughs) Salman has, he has some millions. He is not so rich that I think that you would see his coffers and be like, that's enough for me to fall in love with you, right? Especially if you're as gorgeous as Padma, right? Like, she could have, if she just wanted somebody who would marry her for her looks and she would marry him for his money, she could have found someone way wealthier. So, so I think well she just, put. like, I don't think that that would have made economic sense. Like, she definitely <laughs> loved him. <laughs> Economically, <laughs> that's how we know that there was something here. Amen. I'm so with that. Yeah, you're totally right. And I and I do want to add another addendum to that, which is that if you are a gold digger and you are with someone for their money, that's fine. Totally, totally. <laughs> if 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 you're with someone for their money and they're with you for your looks, that is an exchange two adults can make, and that's fine. Yeah, like, totally fine. We also live in a world where it is very hard for women to amass large amounts of money. Yeah, that's unfair. If you want to get yours by marrying someone who has that money, go for it. Like, that sounds great. Go do that. 
100%. I love a good gold digger. Good for you. Like, I'm so supportive of gold it. diggers. Yeah, yeah it's get a good it, aspiration. <laughs> and also, if he divorces you, then you have a ton of money that you can donate to charity. And we've seen lots of former wives of billionaires start doing that lately. So, you know, do it for the sake of the world, Mary Rich. Look at that. I, I think this is the aspiration. <laughs> that's that's what we should all have the goal of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do it for feminism. Yeah. So as much as Padma admits to admiring Salman on an intellectual level, she could also relate to his experiences of cultural hybridity. In her memoir, she wrote of her former husband, it was wonderful because I finally had somebody who understood me because he too was Indian and he was living in the West and he was very nimble in navigating those two worlds. I think that that's an interesting observation. Like on some level, these two people really did understand each other and they had this shared experience that, you know, there are definitely other people who could relate to, but in their world, they probably didn't encounter people every day who understood what it was to have that kind of culturally hybrid experience. Yeah, I think there's so much to be said for living in a Western world and then being in a relationship with someone who has the same cultural background as you. Mm -hmm. There is nothing like that. And I can see that in what she's saying. Like, it's almost like she just found family. Like, she found mm-hmm. someone who is a piece of her and understands her in this really deep way. There is, I, I, I don't even know if you can quite understand unless you've had that. But there, again, like, I think that probably added to that deep, deep love that she had for this guy. Absolutely. Papa had thought their affair would stay extramarital. But in 2000, Salman surprised her by announcing he was leaving his wife. Together, they moved into a beautiful NYC brownstone for which Padma oversaw the renovations. The couple, who officially wed in 2004, led a very glamorous literary life, throwing dinner parties for such luminaries as Susan Sontag. While Salman held court with his friends, Padma spent much of these soirees in the kitchen, her happy place, preparing the food. However, Padma wanted more than just to be an appendage to her world-famous husband. In her memoir, she writes... I felt the self-induced pressure of making something of myself. In her 30s, Padma started to get more serious about food. She pitched the idea of hosting a show about cuisine to Bravo, an idea that evolved into her being the host of their new cooking competition series, Top Chef. Padma joined Top Chef in season two, and here is a clip of her early work on the series. Hello, everyone. As you know, two chefs are gone, and there are 13 of you left. Many of you are used to cooking for fine dining customers, but only 38% of Americans eat in fine dining restaurants. We want to see if you understand how to create original and exciting food for the man in the street. Today's quick fire challenge is to create an original ice cream flavor. I would pay a lot of money for Padma to challenge me to do anything. yeah. To do anything. Oh, for sure. So, Sadaf, what makes a great reality TV host? I mean, I find her very charismatic. I really like her. But what about her has such staying power? Why is she such an icon of the genre? Well, I love reality TV. It is my whole life. So I feel like I can really answer this question. And I think it's not just about being charming and being funny, although I do think those two things count. I think it's really knowing what you're working with. Mm-hmm. So for her, she really knows food. Like yeah. she really understands what she's working with. She's not just 
I, we're going to keep saying this, but she's not just this pretty face that's attached to be there, to be mm-hmm. there. She knows what she's doing. She understands what she's eating. I love listening to her critiques. And that, I think, is the key thing. She's also a really good judge. Like, she can be critical, but she can be kind. She's not coming from one extreme or the other. I mean, one of the reasons why Chris Harrison was such a terrible host of The Bachelor was I just never believed he knew anything about relationships yeah. or comforting people. <laughs> Great example. Great example. That's somebody who looked like he just had a puppet and there was like a hand jammed right all the way up into his head. Like there was just Mm. nothing real about that man. And Padma is very, very authentic. I do want to add, and you kind of touched on this already, but she also has a really fucking soothing voice. Mm -hmm. Like she's got to do some ASMR. I would listen to her at all times of the day. You need to listen to her book. So I listened to the audio version of her book because I love her voice so much. It was the best two days of my life, I'm honestly. Like, I was so calm and even keeled. It's way better than meditating. Just listen <laughs> to this audiobook. I believe it. So Padma loved the rush of hosting a high-stakes cooking competition. But as she reached new professional heights, her marriage reached new lows. According to Padma, I noticed he would get grumpy if my schedule conflicted with his. That she's talking about Salman there. Adding to the marital strain was Padma's endometriosis, a health condition that caused her enormous pain and necessitated multiple operations. Padma's endometriosis made sex painful for her, and so the couple's intimate life suffered. Salman's reaction could easily be described as annoyance. In the words of Padma, quote, My husband never truly grasped the extent of my pain. In one moment of particularly acute insensitivity, Salman referred to his wife as a bad investment. Oh my God, the level of rage that I just felt. If a writer wrote that in a screenplay, you'd be like, chew on the nose. There's no way he actually said that. It's like, no, he actually said that. This man, one of the most articulate people on the planet, famous for his nuanced writing. I mean, according to many critics, his nuanced writing, I... You know, I'm not saying that. I haven't read him in a very long time. But he is famous for his use of language. And this is what he says to his wife, that you were a bad investment. Well, we know he doesn't know how to speak to women. That's established. But I think also what's sad about this is it confirms what I was fearing, that for him, this was a transactional relationship. It does. Like, And there's a lot of other stuff in the memoir that suggests he wanted his wife to be something of a fangirl and to be his arm candy and to reassure him. Like, every year when he didn't win the Nobel Prize, she had to reassure him that it didn't mean he wasn't a great writer and to soothe him. Like, he had a huge ego and he wanted his wife to service it. God bless her for sharing all that shit. Like, yeah, air that laundry out, please. Yeah. Eventually, Padma explains in her memoir that she started to feel, quote, less unhappy when he wasn't around. The couple would break up and get back together a few times, but the marriage ended for good in 2007. Even though they eventually split, the pair remained friends, and Salman actually gave his approval for Padma to write about the demise of their marriage in her memoir. At the same time, as she kind of alludes to in her memoir, he is a very famous advocate of free speech, like unfettered free speech. Um, So if he had gone on record telling her not to write about the things he said to her, that would have been super hypocritical. And if that had gotten out in the media, that kind of would would have ended him. That and again, I feel like he's ego-driven where it's like, oh, you want to write about me in your book? Like, I think he probably loved that (laughs) to some degree. Uh, Yeah, I I think he probably subscribes to the notion that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Like, okay, (laughs) 
You can write about me and what's sure to be your best-selling memoir. Sure. The man went through a fatwa. I mean, if Padma Lakshmi wants to say he was an asshole of a husband, I think Salman's going to be like, yeah, go for it. And like at this point, I mean, she was a big reason he was getting press, Mm -hmm. which probably was not easy for him. Or maybe it was because he, I think he liked being in the spotlight to a huge degree. So I think that he was upset she eclipsed him because she makes that pretty clear in her memoir, that he was upset she wasn't always there to be on his arm. It's kind of implied that maybe he felt a little bit threatened by her newfound fame. Um, But I do think you're right that he has this kind of ambivalent relationship with her fame because he also likes that it gets him more intention. I mean, I am speaking for him. He hasn't told me that. But I would speculate he likes the attention. Like, this is somebody who she says was constantly going to events, like would go to any red carpet you invited him to. And that was part of the reason he was frustrated with her schedule because he wanted to be at these red carpet events all the time and she just wasn't always available anymore. Like, he really wanted red carpet arm candy. I just don't like him. (laughs) If it's not clear already. It's hard because, I mean... I have not, I have admittedly not read all of his books. I have read Midnight's Children. I read that I, one. I agree is an excellent work of literature. I agree that he is a fantastic writer, um, but he does sound kind of like a tool in his personal life. <laughs> but you can also tell it from his writing a little bit, I think, which maybe is a shitty thing for me to say, but again, it goes back to that intellectualism, which I'm not a fan of, and all of his books kind of have that. I couldn't get through Satanic Verses for that reason, but listen, that's my opinion. (laughs) Just like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a fan of blowhards like this, which is what I think he is. I'm also just not a fan of men who feel entitled to prestigious awards. Like, anytime a director gets upset that he didn't get nominated for an Oscar, I stop liking them and it's the same thing anytime somebody feels entitled to a Nobel Prize in literature. Yeah. Fuck off. Okay. So let's discuss the history of celebrity and non-celebrity men turning on their wives as their careers take off. Because that's that's something that happens all the time. (laughs) Happens all the time. I could list I could list a million. Tom Cruise, Michael Mm -hmm. Douglas, Sylvester Stallone, Mm -hmm. the guy from Grey's Anatomy, Jesse Williams. Like, I just, Mm -hmm. it's a long, Mm -hmm. long list, and it makes me really, really mad. But I think this is probably something that also happens in normal life, too. When people experience success, I think a part of it is that they don't really want to be with the person who reminds them of where they were before. And maybe there was also an element for some celebrities that it's like, I could do better now. You know, you have all these people paraded in front of you. I can see how you would get there. Yeah, I think that masculinity has been socially constructed to make a lot of men feel that they need to be the brighter stars in the relationship, that they need to be more famous if there is fame to be had, that they certainly need to have more stature and more respect in their careers, that they need to make more money. One of the reasons I love my husband is it is his greatest dream to be a stay-at-home dad. He's always telling me, I hope you become rich one day so I can become a stay-at-home dad. And I will never make enough money for him to be a stay-at-home dad. So (laughs) that dream's never coming true. We don't know that. We don't know that. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But that, like, he's all like, I want you to become rich and famous so that I can be a sad. Like, I'm cool with that. But clearly that was not Salman, and that's not many men, especially of his generation. Um, Yeah. So we'll see how younger generations of celebrity men adapt to these struggles. But, you know, 
I'm not super optimistic that this whole phenomenon of men being threatened by more successful women will completely disappear. Yeah, I I think so too. I'm with you. I think the time has come to take a short break. And when we come back, we will continue Padma's story. With Top Chef, one of the world's most popular cooking shows, Padma's career was hot, hot, hot. In addition to her TV presenting duties, she had several other projects on the go, including a self-titled jewelry line that sold at fancy pants stores like Bergdorf Goodman, Neiman Marcus, and Nordstrom. Her writing about fashion and food also appeared in a variety of prestigious publications like the New York Times and Harper's Bazaar. In 2009, she even did an infamous and very sexy ad for burger chain Carl's Jr., where she is eating a burger that is covered in sauce that keeps dripping on her body. I've always had a love affair with food. And after traveling the world and writing two cookbooks, I think I've tasted every flavor imaginable. But there's something about the Western bacon. Yeah, I mean, a lot of celebrities did these ads at that time. They did. I had to take a sip of water. I am parched. I, oh my God. (laughs) I I have to say, I loved that. (laughs) Minus the (laughs) fact that she's salivating over Western bacon. Yeah, yeah. Pam is better than that. Yeah, as a brown person, I struggle with that being like the meat of the commercial. But listen, I am probably one of the minority women who actually really enjoyed those ads. They were just ridiculous. It was just like clownery. It was absurd. The crime is that, again, we are not a visual format, so you couldn't see it. We'll put it in the show notes so so you can feast your eyes. No, I mean... It is so over the top that it's almost not even objectification, even though, yeah, it is is objectification. And I I imagine they paid these women very well because a lot of celebrities did those ads. I mean, Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian, as well as Padma. So they were laughing all the way to the bank. Good for them. For Western bacon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. One of her most important projects was the creation of the Endometriosis Foundation of America, a nonprofit she founded with her doctor to help raise awareness about endometriosis as a condition. This was a personal cause for Padma because while endometriosis had caused her decades of pain, she wasn't clinically diagnosed with it until her mid-30s. For Padma, the most devastating aspect of endometriosis was when her doctor explained the disease would make it impossible for her to conceive a child naturally. Had she known this earlier, Padma explains in her memoir that she would have frozen her eggs at a young age to maximize the chances of having successful live births. Here's a clip of Padma discussing why she invests so much time now in educating others on endo. I never heard the word endometriosis until I was in my mid-30s. It was never my intention to speak, you know, to rooms full of people about my vagina. But I don't want the next generation of women and young girls to go through what I did. So let's explain why it matters for celebrities like Padma to do this sort of advocacy. 
Why is this kind of celebrity advocacy so important for raising awareness about women's health issues? Well, I have PCOS, and I don't talk about that a lot, but hey, now I'm saying it for many people to listen to. But part of the reason I don't talk about it a lot is because there's not a lot of people generally who know about it and who do discuss Mm. it. But people like Emma Thompson, and there's also Kiki Palmer, Victoria Beckham, who've talked about living with PCOS and have made Mm -hmm. big statements about it, makes me feel so much better. I can't even describe it and actually made me want to seek out a diagnosis and treatment and all those sorts of things. And I remember with Lena Dunham as well, when she talked about her endometriosis, it makes such a difference. People feel less alone. Like, I think that these things are way more important than our society acknowledges. Like, we often make fun of celebrity advocacy, and sometimes it can be cringeworthy. Like, I'm not going to pretend that that it can't. Like, there are a lot of celebrity activists who are who are gross, like cough, cough, Susan Sarandon. Uh, or if you saw Annalyn McCord's recent video for Putin. <laughs> yeah, okay. So there's some really, really bad celebrity advocacy and activism out there. But yeah. when you have someone like Padma, who can articulately tell her story, something she went through, um, somebody who's idolized by many, that's a great way to get attention for a cause that she really has educated herself about, um, that she has firsthand experience about. I mean, when celebrities talk about things that they honestly know about and care about, I love it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I think that's when we have to remember that actually celebrity is important. Yes, I just said that, but it is important. Like, it's good that we have these figures because they bring awareness to things like this. I mean, this is one of the reasons, but I think it's so paramount Mm -hmm. because sometimes you don't want to hear it from a Dr. Fauci. (laughs) You want to hear it from someone who you've watched growing up, let's say, or who you trust in whatever movies. Maybe that sounds stupid, but that's how humanity works. We are simple people. And If I hear Tom Hanks to tell me to do absolutely anything, I'm going to go run and do it because I trust that man like he is my dad, okay? Like, it makes a difference. Anytime I need you to give me a favor. You just tell me Tom Hanks would appreciate it if you did this, and I'll come running. (laughs) Pema's love life post-divorce was hot, too. In 2007, she met billionaire Teddy Forsman for dinner at Il Cantonore. You may be familiar with Teddy because in addition to buying and selling many companies, such as Community Health Systems, Yankee Candle, 24-Hour Fitness, and Citadel Broadcasting, he also dated none other than Princess Diana for a time in the 90s. Damn. Okay, Teddy. I know. Teddy is game. Um, In 2007, Teddy was the CEO of global entertainment company IMG. So Papa thought their dinner was a working meeting to discuss her ideas for a film project. Teddy, however, thought it was a date. Classic. Mm-hmm. Initially, Padma didn't see Teddy as a romantic prospect. He was three decades older, and she was anxious to get out of what she saw as a pattern of looking for substitute father figures. Um, she hadn't really grown up knowing her father, and she says in her book that she feels she was looking for substitute fathers mm. in a lot of her romantic relationships, and she didn't want to do that anymore. Daddy issues. However, she was drawn to Teddy. As she says, he was the most confident man I had ever met. He pulled out all the stops booing her as only a billionaire can. Soon after they met, Teddy learned Padma was heading to L.A. for Mother's Day. He offered to fly her there and back in his private jet. Teddy enjoyed talking to Padma so much that he kept sneaking off to tell the pilot to circle the airport a few more times so they could keep hanging out. It's a little creepy, but regardless, (laughs) Padma was starting to like him. 
If it's in a private jet, it's not creepy, Sarah. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's also like, it's one of those things where things that could be creepy, if you don't like the guy, it's That's gross. It and if you do, you're like, so sweet. I'm smitten. If Salman did this, I creepy. would want to jump out the plane. But if Teddy does this, let's keep going. Let's do it all day. <laughs> Ultimately, Teddy won Padma over with how much he cared about her as a person, not just as a piece of arm candy. In her memoir, she describes being charmed by how he took the time out of his busy billionaire schedule to read books on Indian history so he could know more about her background. Padma, who by this time was certain she wanted children, admired how Teddy was so devoted to his sons, Sia and Everest, two boys he had adopted from South Africa as a single dad. She savored having dinners with Teddy and his kids. I mean, he gets better and better. He do, he is a Republican, though. Like, that is something that, <coughs> oh. that will come up. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yeah. So okay. <laughs> Teddy cared about making sure Padma felt comfortable in his home. He was a Republican, but he removed the pictures of Presidents George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush that were displayed in his house. Wow. And he did so because she said they made her feel uncomfortable because she is a staunch Democrat. Teddy also doted on Padma when she was experiencing endometriosis-related health problems, sending flowers, and making sure she was on the mend. According to Padma, Teddy taught me about kindness, about love that was unconditional. Aww. Yeah, it is a really sweet relationship. And the way she writes about him, you kind of fall in love with him through her perspective. Like, it's really hard to come away from her memoir. And that's where that quote I just read you about kindness is from. It's hard to come away from that memoir not thinking Teddy Forsman was just a fantastic human being. Um, I'm not sure he was. Um, I think some of the businesses that were bought out by him might disagree. Um, yeah. But she really sells you on him. You can tell she genuinely loved this man. Well, it's always so sweet seeing someone through the lens of love from someone else. And it's interesting because this one is so different from the previous one. I feel like she came from a place of not being treated as well as she could be to being mm -hmm. showered with it and then being inundated with it and then being like, damn, this can happen? Okay, great. Like, that's awesome. And I love that he treated her like the prize that she is. Let's be real. And, you know, I will say... Maybe I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with somebody who has different politics than I do, but I am really fascinated by the fact that they could make that work. Like, I do think that's interesting. Like, it's not something that held them back. Mm -hmm. And he also had a lot of friendships with people with different politics. Like, yeah. he was actually good friends with Nelson Mandela. So he good was somebody... friends with Nelson Mandela? <laughs> yeah, that was something that also very much impressed Padma. She talks about that in the no book. No kidding. Yeah, it is It is pretty impressive. That's a really good endorsement. If yeah. Nelson Mandela likes you, it, it's really hard to take issue with that person. <laughs> so he was used to getting along with people who had different politics. And so yeah. I, I imagine he was a pretty diplomatic person. So, so far, Sadaf, do you think Teddy is just a repeat of Padma's tendency to fall for more experienced, more connected older men? Or are you rooting for them? I think I know your answer. Well, I think a bit of both. I think a bit of both. I absolutely would be rooting for that one million percent. But I do think she has a tendency to fall for older men of a certain type. I don't think that's a bad thing. I said before, I think this is a classic example of daddy issues. And she kind of says that herself. Uh -huh. A lot of us have them. But 
I don't know. I think that it can work out still. And I think it can be okay if there is an actual appreciation and respect and love there. And it seems like there was for them. Yeah, I, I'm rooting for them at this point. I, yeah. I want them to succeed. These two crazy kids. I mean, <laughs> he's not a kid, but... I want these people to succeed. No, not at all. Um, So Padma admits she didn't feel ready for Teddy when they met. Uh, The dissolution of her marriage was a serious, life-altering event, and she wasn't prepared for another serious relationship. And so she told Teddy that she didn't want to be exclusive. This was something that she was fairly open about. Uh, Padma met venture capitalist Adam Dell, Soon thereafter, Um, Adam was Padma's age. While the pair didn't connect well on an emotional or intellectual level, she found him very sexy, describing him as, quote, the prom date I never had. Since Padma had been told she couldn't conceive naturally, she didn't use birth control with either Teddy or Adam. And I'm saying that because it it does become relevant. I'm not trying to shame her for for that. No, no. So at age 38, Padma received the surprise of a lifetime when she learned she was pregnant. Um, As she told the podcast, Me Becoming Mom, when she heard the news, quote, I couldn't get the smile off my face. But as elated as she was to become a mother by surprise, Padma also had a couple of difficult conversations to get through because she didn't know who the father of her baby was. Both Mm. Teddy and Adam knew she was seeing other people, but they didn't know she saw both of them with such frequency and so close together. What was most heartbreaking was that she now realized Teddy was the man she wanted to be with. Now she worried he wouldn't stand by her if he wasn't the father. It wasn't just the prospective fathers who were interested in the identity of Padma's baby daddy. Publications all over the world, from the Times of India to Us Weekly, also reported on the mystery of who fathered Padma's child. In fact, Us Weekly speculated the dad was actually Manu Nathan, who was actually Padma's cousin. Rope. <laughs> <laughs> In 2021, Padma reflected on the paternity scandal, saying, quote, I was sort of between relationships without going into the specifics. It definitely complicated the situation. And as we know, our society is a patriarchal society. So I knew that it was not the ideal way, obviously, to be in the situation I was in. And she's absolutely right. Our society is patriarchal and we are obsessed with women's sex lives and obsessed with judging women for their sex lives. And we're also obsessed with paternity. So it doesn't surprise me that this became a scandal, even though it's completely gross that people were so invasive about her private life. I know she was a famous person, but I do think we owe celebrities a modicum of privacy. And when it comes to things like the father of their child, right? Like that also concerns their kid. It's not just about them. So I don't know if you can reasonably say they owe us that information, especially like, you know, before they even know it. Like she, she didn't know. Do you think we would be any less obsessed today with the identity of Padma's baby's father, Sadaf? Oh God, no. I mean, we've talked about this. We're obsessed with knowing who the father of Mindy Kaling's baby mm-hmm. is. I don't think that curiosity is ever going to shift. My God, I have so much of it. But I think the difference here is that as reporters, as people in media, I don't think you and I would ever speak to Mindy Kaling and stick a mic in her face and say, hey, who's the father of this kid? Tell me now. And I also would never put it in in the cover of a magazine. So there is a difference. I think it's so natural and so human to want to know and to speculate and to have a group chat about it. But 
I don't know, that's human nature. I think it's a different thing when you're actively being invasive in someone's life and kind of making them feel like they have to tell you and it's something that they owe you because she really doesn't. No, she didn't owe the world that. And also, I mean, while you're gestating, it's just such a stressful time pregnancy that I do think we should respect the privacy and sanctity of a woman's control over her own Mm -hmm. uterus. And that includes the knowledge of who, you know, helped put the baby in there. So, I I mean, I think this is ridiculous. Like, you, stress can cause miscarriage. Like, the media just needs to be more ethical about the way it covers pregnancy. I have thought that for a really long time, and I continue to think that pregnancy is, in many ways, a health issue, and you can affect the outcome if you are too invasive and cause an expectant mother anxiety. I also do just want to say that, um, you know, even just kind of making somebody feel like they have to tell you how their relationship was operating, that she was in an open relationship or that she wasn't exclusive or Mm -hmm. that she slept with whoever, that she thought that she couldn't conceive. So they ended up not using protection. Like, she didn't owe us any of these details. Um, I just, it makes me a little sad, that last statement that you read that she said, because I just... It's kind of, it's a little bit of shaming. Mm -hmm. And she knew that the way that she was living and the way that she was handling her relationships is not something that's really that accepted in society, even today. So I'm just sad she was ever in that position. It was slut-shaming of an epic degree. Like, it actually kind of reminds me of what Monica Lewinsky went through. It's just the whole world is obsessed with your uterus and your sex life. And in a judgmental way, it's not like, oh, we're so happy that you're pregnant. It's they want all of these, what they are selling as salacious details. Like that's the way it was packaged. It wasn't like, oh, we're so happy for Padma. It's not like, you know, when Kate Middleton has a baby, everyone's so excited about the name. And like, it it wasn't like that. It was... See, it was written about like it was seedy when it wasn't. It, you know, yeah. this was a woman who was in control of her sex life and she <laughs> had conceived a baby by accident. So that happens yeah. every day. That happens all the time. And it's fine. Yeah. Yes. On January 29th, 2010, days before her daughter's birth, Page Six revealed the baby's biological father was Adam Dell. While the media circus was invasive, Page Six's story ultimately proved accurate. But just because Teddy hadn't been the one to impregnate Padma, that didn't mean he wasn't a co-parent. Teddy quickly got over his feelings of anger when he found out he was not the baby's dad. He stood by Padma through a difficult pregnancy that required weeks of bed rest because of a condition called placenta priva that she developed. Krishna Lakshmi Dell was born on February 20th, 2010. When Padma delivered her daughter, Teddy acted as her birth partner. No, oh. you know it's a beautiful story. <laughs> it just makes me so happy. I know. Tragically, Teddy passed away from brain cancer in 2011. Oh God! <laughs> Before his death, he changed his will to leave a trust fund for Krishna, ensuring his partner's child would be provided for. I know, it's a really beautiful story about unconditional love. Yeah, it really takes you through it. I, I can only imagine, I, well, I can't even imagine what the hell Padma must have felt. But like, yeah, unconditional love is the word. Oh, my God. Yeah. So sweet. Today, Padma Lakshmi continues her work as the host of Top Chef. She also created and hosts a travel show about American cuisine called Taste the Nation, which streams on Hulu. Padma remains a staunch advocate for women's health. And in 2021, she published a new hit cookbook called Tangy, Tart, Hot, and Sweet. And of course, she's a proud single mom to a daughter she described on her 11th birthday as, quote, funny, kind, talented, tenacious. So 
She really likes her kid. She also calls her smart and beautiful inside and out. Now the time has come for Hindsight is 2022, when Sadaf and I discuss what we might have done differently if we were the subjects of today's story. I shouldn't have done that. So, Sadaf, what would you have done differently? Well, first of all, I want to say what a happy ending, technically. I mean, Padma is at her peak, I would say. Mm -hmm. I've never loved her more. Taste the Nation is great. That last cookbook was great, by the way. Um, So I'm just so happy for her, and I love her relationship with her daughter. But what I would love to have seen differently is... um, well, we just touched on, I wish people were had been a little bit less invasive about her life because I think she's a really good example of how you can have different kinds of relationships. Like, I mm-hmm. think that's so great that she was doing that and she was dating that way um, because we still don't really talk about it. And there's not a lot there's not a lot of celebrities who are open about that. Um, I mean, her hand was forced, but I think it just makes her all the more interesting. And I do just wish that that love story with Teddy had just lasted a little bit longer. Uh, I feel like by the time she got to the point where she was like, I want to do this, there wasn't much time left. I know. It's a really tragic story. In some ways, it's a story that inspires you to grab the people you love and tell them what they mean to you because you never know how much time you have with them. I mean, Teddy was a lot older when she met him, but he was yeah. in good health. And yeah. I, I don't think she thought that his days were as numbered as they were. I don't think anyone did. I think everyone thought he had at least 15 good years left. And that didn't end up being the case. So it, it is one of those stories that tells you to live life to the fullest. And that also short love affairs, because they didn't have a lot of time together, can sometimes be just as meaningful as a lifetime with someone. Yeah. And I do just want to say, like, my favorite thing about her is she's just this amazing brown woman. And we don't have a lot of um, brown celebrities like this who get this kind of platform. And she's got that. And she spent a lot of time working on it and moving through a lot of obstacles to get there. So I just love her so much. I do too. And I guess, I mean, I totally agree with you. The media should have been more respectful when she was pregnant, especially because yeah. she had a really high-risk pregnancy. I mean, placenta priva. I was a placenta priva baby. My brother was a placenta priva baby. That bed rest is no joke. Some of my earliest memories are of going to visit my mom when she was on bed rest in Mount Sinai because my brother was a placenta priva baby. It's very mm. rare to have two, but she did. Yeah. Um, you can't do anything. You can't move. Um, stress can cause labor, and you're just trying to keep that baby in for as long as possible because placenta priva babies are usually born quite early, and we know the risks of premature birth. Um, and so I just have so much empathy for her knowing like how hard it was for my mother to keep my brother in for 35 weeks. And she didn't have the international press speculating about yeah. her child's paternity. So just imagine what it's like to have... She must just be so good at keeping calm. And this is maybe why her yeah. voice is so soothing. Maybe she just is that <laughs> calm. Because I think so. I believe that. Like I, that, the stress of that just would have been too much for me. I would have been completely yeah. overcome. So I really respect her for that. And I also just, I would like to say, Teddy, wherever you are, I think you've done a lot of good for the world and for, for Padma. You know, um, so thank you for loving her. Um, 
and because she really deserved to be loved this way. Um, I, you know, I just think he seems like a really beautiful person, even though I don't know if I would have liked him given his politics and given his job was just like buying companies and selling them for a higher price. Like, that is kind of predatory. Um, But I've kind of (laughs) fallen in love with him through her. I mean, listen, he was a single dad to two kids that he adopted. He was a good guy. I think he had a good heart. Um, He also, he was not perfect. But there's a lot of things we can take from him that show that he was a really good guy. And he was a good guy to our girls. So we love that. Everybody deserves a teddy. I mean, especially Padma, because Padma's fabulous. But I just feel like if, I wish all of my amazing female friends could find, you know, somebody as loving to just take care of them when they need it, like Teddy. Okay. My my search for a billionaire who's 23 years older than me (laughs) begins now. It doesn't need to be a billionaire. I just like somebody who can love so unconditionally. Like, I'm so inspired (laughs) by him. I know. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a really beautiful love story. Like, on this show, usually, I I don't actually earnestly cry, but I was crying doing the research. I was like, no, Teddy, don't die. My God, you're making me emotional. <laughs> I, I was worried I would cry during the recording because I was so invested in their love story. <laughs> it's really beautiful. I think also, again, just seeing it from her lens is just so sweet. He, they were amazing together. That love existed, mm-hmm. right? Like it happened and she gets to have that forever. Yeah, but for my hindsight is 2022. Salman, you're a great writer. You should have been a good husband. Like telling Ooh. a woman you were a bad investment it's not okay. That's Ugh. never okay. I don't care what don't kind of a fight me. you're having. It's not okay. No, we hate that. No, not okay. Be a better husband when you get married again. Like, I feel like it's inevitable to get married again, you know? I think so. When you do, when you find your new bride, like, just be a little bit nicer to her. <laughs> I think that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Ultimately, the evolution of Padma Lakshmi is an empowering feminist story about how a woman survived a racist entertainment industry, a bad marriage, and a truly sexist paternity scandal to become a strong woman who is in control of her own narrative. To that end, I highly recommend you go read her memoir, Love, Loss, and What We Ate. No one tells Padma's story better than Padma. Amen. And also go check out her cookbooks. They are genuinely really good. As always, we hope you'll be back next week. I also want to say a big thank you to Ethel Mofojo, who helped us out with research for this episode. And also Joe Fish, our amazing producer, who has helped us make the reheat what it is from the very start. Now, if you want to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Sadafasan. Sarah, where can our listeners find you? Listeners can find me at Sarah Sahagian. And if you liked the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe so other listeners can find us too. Thanks for listening. 